But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad, and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day, being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. O Lord, illumine to us the words and works of our Lord. Show us the wealth of your glory, wisdom, and majesty that lie beneath familiar stories. Teach us the depths of meaning hidden in your word. Raise us up to the faith of the apostles and reveal to us the meaning of their witness to the kingdom of God. Open our eyes and ears and renew our minds through the wonders and the works of Christ. It is in the name of Christ our Lord that we pray and ask this. Amen. may be seated. Last week we looked at the event of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, so this week we'll turn our attention to the first Christian sermon, the first sermon that follows and interprets those events. And what we're really seeing in Acts chapter 2 as a whole is the marking of a new age. Better yet, what we're seeing in the New Testament, the time during Jesus' ministry and after his death and resurrection and after his ascension into heaven is both the fulfillment and the fulcrum of history. There's a turning point happening here. So what I want to show you is something that every person ultimately has to deal with. Something that is foundational to reality. Even if you don't deal with it now, you'll have to deal with it someday because that's how reality works. And here's why. Christianity makes non-ignorable claims. And that's something that every single person ultimately is not going to be able to ignore forever. 
Peter, in this sermon, the first sermon, makes Jesus non-ignorable. And let me show you three ways how Peter does this. First, he shows us God's own heart. Second, he shows us what the entire Bible is about. And third, he shows us how to deal with death. So first, Peter shows us God's own heart. This is important, but first let me tell you why it's important. Most people ignore God. Certainly, most people ignore Christianity, and the reason is often one of two reasons in my experience. To them, God is either an impersonal force, so he's not, he's not really knowable, he's not really a person, he's just an ethereal force, or God is an authoritarian. Christianity, however, says that God is personal and God is gracious. We just need to see how he is those things. So let me show you how. Look at verse 22 and 23. Notice, Peter begins by presenting Jesus as first a historical person. He says, look at the life of Jesus, a life speaking to primarily a Jewish audience, a life that you yourselves witnessed and observed. God did three things to show you how Jesus of Nazareth was more than just a Jewish carpenter, how he was more than just a moral teacher or some human religious figure. He says, through Jesus, God demonstrates, one, his power. Two, he amazed. He amazed you. And three, he pointed to spiritual realities beyond merely what he did. In other words, Jesus performed miracles in your midst that need to be dealt with. Who does that make him? If you would have been a Jewish person at this time, it might have been easy to dismiss this, though you would have been able to say, Jesus was a prophet. Prophets do miracles. But Jesus took his claims too far. He said that he himself was God, which, is, which leads the Jewish people to crucify Jesus, which is exactly what Peter is accusing them of. Notice the first, uh, verse 22 and verse 36 are admissions of guilt. But Peter's not done yet. He says that God, through Jesus, shows us not only his power and awe, but he actually shows us God's very own heart. Look at verse 23. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter is saying here, even if you think that you can ignore Jesus' miracles, you cannot ignore God's heart. You might be able to brush aside what God has done, but can you brush aside who God is? Now, if you know the Bible, if you're a student of the Bible, you know that there's one proper way to read the Bible as a story of rescue. What do I mean? In the beginning, God is the creator. He creates everything. We read this earlier. Creates everything, including humanity. He makes humanity in his likeness, meaning we're made to reflect who God is and we're made to be in a binding relationship with God. However, Sin comes into God's good creation and it distorts and disrupts everything. It disrupts God's design for the purpose of humanity. Even the most secular people ultimately agree that humanity is not perfect. The Bible, however, tells us why and how this happened. And this is why. We are out of fellowship with our Creator 
and our, our own hearts are distorted. We want what we were never created to have. Ultimate power, material things, ascending influence, you name it. So what does God do? He pursues humanity on a mission of rescue. Peter says that, that mission of rescue is led by Jesus. But here's the key to what Peter's saying. Jesus is not plan B. Jesus is God's plan A. What do I mean? Look, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So here, we see two things. First, we see that God is absolute. Second, God is a God of mutual self-giving love. Let me tell you what I mean by these. First, God is absolute. Let me give you two examples to show you this. God is absolute because ultimately we know that the universe has a supreme being. Descartes, René Descartes, French philosopher in the 1500s, 1600s, he said that knowledge of God is actually self-evident according to our ability to reason, to think. And that God is necessarily exists because it would be irrational for God not to exist because he's the ultimate being of the universe and the universe needs an ultimate being. In other words, reason, what we can rationally conceive, is innate to us because nothing unreasonable can be conceived of because that thing would be unnecessary for it to exist. It would be unreasonable but it's necessary for something reasonable to exist. You see how that works? You've glazed over. Okay, let me give you a better way of saying this. (laughs) We all know that God exists because we know that it would be worse for him not to exist than it would be if he did. Let me give you an example. Secularism is unable to provide a framework as to why human beings are equal in value. This is why you can't just go up and rob someone and take their stuff away from them because you're stronger than they are. Why? Well, it's common law. Sure, it's common law. It's common law because of the intrinsic value and equity of human beings. Secularism, however, might be able to tell you that, but it can't tell you why. And that's the problem. What I'm trying to get at is God is an absolute because if he wasn't an absolute, he would cease to be God and our ethics would make no sense. There's no foundation for them. There's nowhere for them to be, to be grounded on. Secularism doesn't have a rational way to explain why we do the things that we do. There's misalignment with its ultimate claim that the universe is not the result of, is, is, is birthed out of a violent happenstance. That can't tell us why humans are equal in value and worth. People having been made in the image of God, however, that can. But if God is not God, then we don't get there. Second, God is a God of mutual self-giving love. What do I mean by this? Christianity says God is neither an impersonal force that we can't encounter and know, and neither is God just an ethical watchdog making sure that we keep the rules all the time. Christianity says God is a personal being who absolutely exists, eternally exists, in a mutual relationship of self-giving love, and that is better 
than him not existing. And this, friends, is the Trinity. Literally, the tri-unity of God, three in one. This teaches us the essence of the tri-unity of God. It's God is not a hierarchical being. God is a God of mutual self-giving love between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit existing in perfect union with one another, giving mutual love within himself. And if God is absolute and eternal, his relationship with himself would be the foundation of the universe, not something else. This is what Peter is saying. Jesus is not plan B for the rescue of humanity because the heart of God is to give himself in love. The Son gives himself to the decree, the will of the Father, to give himself in love to the rescue of humanity. And the Holy Spirit gives himself to the Son to secure those whom the Father has foreknown and whom the Father loves and then the Son, and whom the Son loves and has promised to give himself up for. What does this all mean? It means that God's own heart is to give of himself in love. The foundation of reality is one of mutual self-giving love because the Bible tells us that's God's own heart. That's the center of God's relationship with himself. And everything else that we know flows out of that reality. And Peter goes on to say, this love is not unknowable because it's ultimately known in the person of Jesus. Look at verse 22. God attested that this love and self-giving came in a person. Not a moral system or an ethereal force, but a person. Look at it. It says, he was in your midst. And that was God's plan A. To make his own triune love known to the universe in the person of Jesus, who loves perfectly. You and I, we don't love perfectly, but there's one who does. And he came and showed us his love, looking just like you and I, a person. So Jesus gives his his life to demonstrate God's own mutual triune love to us, a perfect and eternal love. And friends, that's the foundation of reality is love. Second, Peter shows us what the entire Bible is about. Two times in this sermon, Peter cites the Psalms. Two different Psalms, and there's multiple connections to other Psalms as well, and he quotes Joel in the previous section we looked at last week. Remember, this sermon is delivered to a Jewish audience during one of the most significant feasts in the life of Israel. You can see it even in the address when Peter says, Men of Israel, brothers... The house of Israel, he's addressing his own people. Peter says that not only is Jesus God in the flesh, but Jesus is actually the center of what the entire Bible is about. Remember, this is before the New Testament is written. He's talking about the Old Testament. The entire Bible is about Jesus. Let me show you. Look at how how Peter interprets Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Verse 24, he says, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by that. I'll get to this verse more in a minute. Verse 25, but for David says concerning him, meaning Jesus, this Jesus. And he goes on to say that David, when writing the Psalms, did not have himself in mind, but he had God's Messiah in mind. God's chosen rescuer who would be someone who David knows would be greater than he was. 
Look at verse 29. Brothers, I say, I, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Psalm 16, David is talking about being uncorrupted by death. Look at it. But Peter goes on to say that it is well known by his own audience that David's own tomb is there in Israel. This is common knowledge. The Old Testament accounts David's own death. So David couldn't be talking about himself because David died. But someone, even though they did die, verse 27, was not abandoned to Hades and did not see corruption. Verse 24, Jesus was killed according to the definite plan of God. Killed by who? The Romans, the lawless men. Romans, friends, are professional executioners. But Jesus did not see corruption. How? Because God raised him. David is talking about Jesus in verse 31 because he couldn't be talking about himself because David knew he would die. Verse 34, Peter cites Psalm 110, which says the Messiah, David's Lord, would be a divine king who would sit at God's right hand and reign over all of creation and that, that his Lord would bring peace, ultimate peace. How will he bring peace? Well, he must die. He must die and be resurrected. And he must ascend to God's right hand to send, verse 33, look, the promised Holy Spirit. And then he will bring peace to God's people through his spirit. This is the marking of a new age. David brought peace through what? War, conquest. How does Jesus, how does the Messiah bring peace? Through the spirit, the power, the presence of God, through prayer. What you must see is this. Peter is saying Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Everything God said and did is about Jesus. And what he does and, is, and, and what Jesus has done and how Jesus is greater than everything that came before him. Let me show you this through the Bible. Genesis 3.15. God promises that a man born of a woman will come and undo the curse of sin and death. And he will be wounded in the process. Jesus is wounded in his death on the cross, but ultimately he reverses sin and death by conquering them. The Exodus. God leads his people out of the slavery and bondage of Egypt through the waters of the Red Sea into a promised land of rest. Jesus comes to deliver his people from the slavery and bondage of sin and death and to bring them into a promised eternal land of rest through the waters of baptism. The prophets come to warn Israel about the coming judgment of God, but they're killed by their own people. Jesus proclaims the kingdom of heaven is near and to repent and leave your sin behind and to follow him. And his own people crucify him, but death cannot hold him because he absorbs the judgment of God on the cross. Daniel goes into the lion's den while Israel is in exile. Ruled by the Babylonians, Jesus goes into the pit of hell itself and conquers death and Satan after he is killed in exile outside the city gates by Romans who occupy Jerusalem. Jesus is the ultimate and better David because he's a better king who subdues all of God's enemies. He defeated a, great, a greater Goliath, defeating the giants of sin and death. Jesus is the better tabernacle. He is God's presence on earth. And through his resurrection and ascension, he sends his promised Holy Spirit, God's power and presence, not bound to a building, but dwelling in the very heart of God's own people. The entire Bible, you must see, is about Jesus. He's the climax of every theme and figure and the better version of every type that comes before him. 
the entire Bible, friends, you must see is about the grace of God. The grace of God through the work of Christ. Now, why is this good news? Because Jesus is the fullness of God's glory and love. And he comes to us in the form of a self-giving servant. God is not an authoritarian. He is a God of rescue. And all of history points to his mission of rescue that we see in Christ. You see, you and I, we want to be gracious people. We want to be patient, faithful, loving, and kind people, but we know we're not. There's a gap between what we desire and who we actually are. We know we're inconsistent. So what's the answer? Is the answer just to try harder? Put more moral codes into our lives, even if we've actually learned to disguise those as Christian devotion? No. It's to see that there is one who is and who always demonstrated grace, who always demonstrated patience and faithfulness and love and kindness for his people perfectly. Jesus never holds himself back from his people. He gives his whole self to them. Jesus never abandons his flock in the face of fear. He goes after the one who strays. Jesus never lashes out in unjust anger. He always responds in love. He never withholds the truth. Jesus never lies. He is truth itself. You see, the whole Bible, friends, is about the grace of God through ultimately Jesus. Finally, Peter tells us how to deal with death. The idea that once you die, your body would be resurrected, that's not a new concept for the Jewish mind at this time. David talks about it here, as well as a number of other places in the Psalms. We see it in the Gospels as Jesus encounters uh, the Jewish leaders of the time. And remember, his own disciples are, are Jewish. So when Jesus talked about resurrection, that's not a new concept to the Jewish mind. The Jewish mind would have understood that after death, a person's soul would go into Sheol, into Hades, for three days and wait there until on the third day it would be reunited, united with God. And then on the final day, there would be a universal resurrection of the body. What is new to the Jewish mind is the resurrection coming through God's own rescuer. Peter says Jesus shows us how to deal with death, but not only how to deal with death, how death was dealt with. Verse 24 again. By being raised up after his death, after it was witnessed that Jesus died and was laid in a tomb, loosing the pangs of death. That's, that's uh, imagery of a woman in labor and crowning and can't hold the baby in any longer. So the baby bursts forward. Jesus, that's the imagery. Jesus, in the same way, cannot be held by death. It's trying to hold him in, and it can't. He bursts forward. He bursts out of Hades, out of the tomb. His body is resurrected. Out of death, friends, you must see this. Out of death comes life. Out of remorse comes renewal. Out of decay comes hope. Out of sorrow comes gladness, because this is how Jesus deals with death. He enters into it, he conquers it, and he reverses its curse. Peter says David was a mighty king, but, but he died. As mighty as he was, he could not conquer death. No one conquers death. But there's one who did. One who reverses death's curse. One who reverses death's sorrow. Look at verse 28. This is the hope the resurrection brings. 
Who can say this? Who can say this in the face of death? You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. See, friends, death can only make the Christian glad and filled with hope because death is no longer a curse. It's a portal, a portal into a new life, into the very presence of God, into, David says, gladness. There's a lot that we can ignore. We cannot ignore death. We will all have to deal with death. But there's one who already did deal with it by reversing its hold on us and undoing its curse. Death no longer separates us from God because of Christ. It gives us the ultimate hope and gladness as we come through death into the very presence of God. You see, God's plan is never threatened. God's plan is never threatened. His plan was always for his creation to have life. But the picture of the gospel, the picture of the gospel is that life comes through death. Flourishing comes through pruning. Gladness comes through sorrow. You say, how can this be? How can Christians think like this? Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, both Lord, Lord over what? Lord over death. And Christ, the fulfillment and the fulcrum of history. This Jesus whom you crucified. Look at verse 37, bonus verse. They are cut to the heart. Meaning Peter's audience sees God's heart and they cannot ignore him. C.S. Lewis said that the whole Christian life is to be taken into the life of God. The life of God, friends, is triune. It's one of mutual self-giving love. And Peter is saying the triune God makes himself known to humanity through ultimately who? Christ. Through this Jesus. Christianity is a resurrection life. It's a gospel life where we're brought into the triune life of God by God himself through the work of his Holy Spirit because of the work of God's Son, Jesus. And we're brought into the very presence of God the Father who we were always made to be in the presence of so that we would be glad. So what does this mean? It means that Jesus flips everything over and begins a new age our conventional sense of things makes no sense of, but this is what Jesus does. The way to power, a gospel life is seeing the way, to, the way to power is to serve. The way to love is to sacrifice. The way to belong is to reach out. The way to be known is to confess your failures. To receive is to give. The way to life is through death. Because there's one who did die. And God raised him and will raise us when we know for certain, look, when he is Lord and Christ. Let's pray. Oh Lord, teach our hearts to look to you as the center of everything. Give our hearts gladness when we rest in you. Teach us how to deal with the trials and suffering of this life. Teach us how to deal with death by looking not to ourselves, but looking to you who did deal with death for us. Let our hearts rest in you, Lord. Let us see the beauty and majesty of Christ in everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.